Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I am so glad you're here. After you listen to this episode, please make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and share. I see that so many of you are listening to the Daily Affirmations episodes, and I hope they continue to be tools that you can use for support, encouragement, and strengthening your daily meditation practice. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at Love Letters and Mixtapes. I wanted to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Snake River Roasting Company's an organic coffee roaster located in the beautiful mountains of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And not only do they roast award-winning coffees, but their mission and commitment to supporting the rights of women farmers around the world are just incredible. I start every single morning with a cup of their Fire on the Mountain organic coffee blend. And if you're anything like me and you're particular about what you eat and drink and how it's sourced, Snake River Roasting Company has a free shipping code for you to give their delicious coffee a taste. Head to their website, snakeriverroastingco.com, and use the code COFFEELOVE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic coffee orders. This week, I wanted to talk with you about imposter syndrome. And it's one of those phrases that I think you see a lot on social media, and it's sort of tossed about in the workplace, but I think it's actually important to always dive deeper into these topics that so many of us can relate to, or the topics that have made their way into sort of pop psychology that are being either overused or misused. And that's not to shame anyone, of course, but to open the discussion and the introspection and Instead of hearing these terms and immediately pointing our fingers at other people, I want to remind us that it's always an opportunity to just look in the mirror and say, does this apply to me? What am I doing to contribute to this? And how is it working through my life? Lately, I've been witnessing a big trend of people wanting to rename concepts, diagnoses, trends, or phenomenons. And while I understand that this is a powerful way to carve out a niche, I often think it comes off as more contrarian or an attempt at trend setting than forward thinking. And if we don't have a solid foundation or understanding of the research that is at the core of all of these terms and trends, and what has offered us a direction and where it originated, then we're actually missing out a bit. Because even if this information evolves over time, as all information does and as it's supposed to do, it still offers us great insight, especially when we have an understanding of what birthed a movement or methodology. So we aren't always using terms that perfectly capture every single thing we feel, but the terms we use can help us to categorize those feelings and criteria so we can meet them with clarity and compassion. And for the sake of this podcast episode, I'm going to use the term imposter syndrome. And if the term imposter syndrome brings up feelings of irritation or discomfort, then I would like to invite you to begin developing a phrase that more accurately captures your feelings that are aligned with everything I'm going to discuss today. And I would also like to point out that discussing imposter syndrome or any clinical trends or diagnosis without also having an understanding of the systems 
which contribute to or exacerbate them means that you're only having half of the conversation. And I'll definitely touch more on that later in this episode, but it's always important for me to bring that into the discussion. So often, we look at mental health without discussing food insecurity, housing, racism, sexism, homophobia, violence, or financial stressors. And the truth is that we don't exist in a vacuum, and neither do our mental health struggles. So with all that said, let's start this talk about imposter syndrome, starting with who came up with the term and why they were talking about it. Imposter syndrome is loosely defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud or the inability to internalize and integrate our own success. And psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes, I believe I'm saying their names correctly, developed this concept, which was originally termed imposter phenomenon. And they did that in their 1978 study that focused on high-achieving women. Their study also said that the term imposter phenomenon is used to designate an internal experience of intellectual phonies, which appears to be particularly prevalent and intense among a select sample of high-achieving women. Certain early family dynamics and later interjection of societal sex role stereotyping appear to contribute significantly to the development of the imposter phenomenon. Despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments, women who experience the imposter phenomenon persist in believing that they are really not bright and have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise. Numerous achievements, which one might expect to provide ample object evidence of superior intellectual functioning, do not appear to affect the imposter beliefs. Self-declared imposters fear that eventually some significant person will discover that they are indeed intellectual imposters. One woman stated, I was convinced that I would be discovered as a phony when I took my comprehensive doctoral examination. I thought the final test had come. In one way, I was somewhat relieved at this prospect because the pretense would finally be over. I was shocked when my chairman told me that my answers were excellent and that my paper was one of the best he had seen in his entire career. Women who exhibit the imposter phenomenon do not fall into one diagnostic category. The clinical symptoms most frequently reported are generalized anxiety, lack of self-confidence, depression, and frustration related to inability to meet self-imposed standards of achievement. So there's a lot of information in just that, you know, one paragraph I read from their initial paper. And imposter syndrome has continued to be studied since that initial research in 1978. You know, what they were talking about in the select group that they were focusing on was not the end-all, be-all of this topic. It just inspired it and opened the door. And what has been revealed since then is that imposter syndrome is not exclusive to women or high-achieving women. And this is important because it's actually a very relatable syndrome. And, 
you know, I have challenging feelings about just the title syndrome, but I think it's a relatable experience. A lot of us have gone through this. A lot of us have these thoughts and this internalized monologue that says many things, but at the core of which is you are not good enough. So this team revisited this topic in 1985 and designed a scale to measure the characteristics of imposter phenomenon. And I believe it's called the Clance Imposter Phenomenon Scale. And you can look it up and find it online. And that scale is used to determine if characteristics of fear are present and to what extent. And the aspects of fear include fear of evaluation, fear of not continuing success, and fear of not being as capable as others. And I'm not going to read the entire test. There are 20 questions, but I figured I would just pick out a few and you can see how they're asking the questions and how these apply to us today. Am I afraid that people important to me may find out that I am not as capable as they think I am? Is it hard for me to accept compliments or praise about my intelligence or accomplishments? Do I tend to remember the incidents in which I've not done my best more than those times that I have done my best? When I've succeeded at something and received recognition for my accomplishments, do I have doubts that I can keep repeating that success? Do I often compare my ability to those around me and think that they may be more intelligent than I am? So those are just a few of the questions. And again, I really do encourage you to look up this questionnaire and take a look at all the questions they're asking, how they add up, and what those scores mean. Because ultimately, we want to know how does all of this apply to us and what can we learn from it? And I've talked about imposter syndrome on Instagram many, many times. <laughs> I have um, so many long form caption posts about this topic. And I'm always surprised by how many people say that they struggle with it as well. And an interesting aspect of imposter syndrome is that there is so much inner dialogue that traps us and isolates us in our minds, yet it's a very common experience. But the voice in our head is saying, no, it's just you. You're the only one. You're the only failure. It's you against the world. Everyone's going to find out about you. And part of the reason I started this podcast is to explore all of these topics and challenges that we actually do have in common when we're telling ourselves that we're the only one who experiences this or that there's something wrong with us. Because as I shared a lot last week, we have so much more in common than we even allow ourselves to believe. And for myself, I always describe my experience with imposter syndrome as overwhelming feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success in all areas of life. So what does that mean? It means that I actually have evidence of success and patterns of escalating achievement. And yet none of that can stand as proof in my mind. You know, something in my head is telling me that all of that was a mistake. I slipped through the cracks. I fooled everyone. And if anyone finds out, they're going to take it all away from me. 
And what you're hearing me say in there is fear. You know, I'm not saying the actual word, but I'm focusing on irrational, grandiose, very distorted fears. And as I've shared in many podcast episodes, you know, fear can be boiled down to three things. I'm afraid that I'm not good enough. I'm afraid that I don't have enough or won't get enough. Or I'm afraid that you are going to take something away from me. And so it's important to look at how fear enters the conversation and how loud it can be and how it can drown out all facts and evidence. And then we have to take a look at how we respond to our fear. Like what is our reactivity doing in those moments? And I can give an example of several people in my life, but I'm actually thinking of one person who Since the moment they graduated high school, almost 20 years ago, they have done nothing but achieve great success. I mean, they have the Midas touch. There is nothing that they have done that they have failed at. And when I talk to them today, they can only focus on the fear. Like they can't even experience their success because they're so hyper focused on the fear of losing all of it or the fear of being found out. They've actually said out loud, I've worked in this one company for almost 15 years and I feel as if I've tricked everyone at every stage of the game, every promotion, every new responsibility I've been given. It's just been luck. I've just managed to figure it out. And one day they're going to see that I actually don't have the skills or the intelligence that they're paying me for, and then they're going to take it all away from me. And that's just one example. And I don't know that everyone necessarily needs to relate to that, but relating to the feeling of tempting the gods with hubris, almost as if I don't want to be too proud of myself. I don't want to be too happy. I don't want to enjoy these rewards, whether they're financial or emotional, I don't want to touch any of them. Because if I do, and if I allow myself to feel good, even just for a moment, I'm inviting someone to walk in and take it all away from me. And hopefully, you can relate to that or even have compassion for what that must feel like to walk through the world all the time, fearing If I allow myself to really show up and embrace and enjoy my life, I'm actually just creating an opportunity for someone to take it away from me. And that's a very dark thinking. It's almost, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop and always focusing on that. So imposter syndrome takes on many forms, but in general, imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of achievement fraudulence. Very often, they believe that they've tricked everyone around them, whether it's a stranger or their partner of 20 years, and fear that one day they will be found out. That feeling just chases them, and they're unable to internalize their accomplishments. So recently I did a whole series on adult children of alcoholics, addicts, and dysfunctional families, and I actually wanted to touch on that a little bit in this episode. 
because for anyone who is raised in a home where a caretaker or sibling had an ism, whatever that ism is, imposter syndrome is very real. And the ability to process imposter syndrome without overwhelming shame can really help those of us who are finally coming to terms with the paradox of responsibility, success, anxiety, and visibility. There are two phrases that always come to mind for me when I'm working with anyone on this topic or if I'm sharing about this topic from my own experience. And those phrases are, one, I am so scared that I'll be found out and I don't even know what it is that I've done. And the second phrase is, I don't think much of myself, but I am all I ever think about. And I feel as if those two sentences, I mean, you can laugh at them because they're kind of funny, but they really capture this bizarre and conflicting feeling that can come up with imposter syndrome and distorted perception and everything that it stirs up inside of us. Because it goes a bit further than just having low self-esteem. And I don't mean to be dismissive and say just low self-esteem because struggling with low self-esteem is a big deal. And struggling with it while also riding a wave of distorted perception and navigating mixed messages in our family of origin, romantic partnerships, or workplace just inflames it. And at its core, imposter syndrome is very good at doing its job, right? Imposter syndrome is out here to rob us of time, energy, peace, developing skills or emotional tools. Imposter syndrome blocks us from being present and able to contribute to the things that we're passionate about or interested in. We end up sabotaging opportunities and relationships because we don't believe that we're good enough, educated enough, or qualified enough, or we're so overwhelmed at the possibility that somebody else would find out who we really are that we'd rather cut ourselves off from the experience before it even starts. And that segues into how imposter syndrome shows up in relationships. And so often, imposter syndrome is only discussed in relation to our academic or professional accomplishments. And I'll definitely touch on that more later in this episode, but I wanted to really focus on relationships for a few minutes because imposter syndrome in relationships shows up with this script that tells us that we are unlovable, unworthy, that we should be untrusting of our own feelings or the feelings expressed by others. And it puts us into this state of hypervigilance and focused on our negativity bias, just really waiting for the other shoe to drop, thinking that for sure nothing can work out. There's no way we can get what we want. There's no way we can be with who we want. And there's almost this feeling that if I ruin things first, this other person can't leave me. And they won't be able to reinforce this idea that I have 
that they would never love me if they really knew me. And it speaks to an overwhelming desire to not be seen because we ourselves are not trusting what we see in the mirror. And I've spoken in the past about a Qigong practitioner that I used to work with at the Cancer Support Center. And he would always tell me that love brings up everything that love is not. And that when love walks in the room, it just illuminates everything that love isn't. And what does that mean? That means that when we actually do encounter those loving, positive, healthy, supportive relationships, the one that we really want, the one that we've been saying that we really want, sometimes we can actually sabotage them because we don't believe that we are worthy. We don't trust how we feel about this other person or we don't trust how they feel about us. Or we're overwhelmed by thinking about how loving and positive this relationship is, and it's reminding us of everything that we haven't had in the past, and all that we've settled for, or all that we have allowed. And those feelings can be really challenging to deal with as we're trying to be present in a loving relationship. It's a lot easier to just walk away or throw a match into it and destroy the whole thing because then we never have to deal with life on life's terms. We never have to deal with this other person being disappointed in us or being scared that they're going to leave us. If we push them away first, then they can't really leave us because we've left them. And that doesn't always have to be the case. I am never sharing these things because I believe that any one of us are doomed. But I do think that when we have information about some of the things that we do and that we bring into relationships, we then have the ability to pivot and try something new and walk ourselves into a space of discomfort and use new emotional tools. So if you are listening to this podcast and you're feeling like, well, you know, maybe I've been doing that in my relationships. Maybe I'm really relying on my distorted perception and writing a script for this other person that they have not written for themselves. And I'm deciding for them how they feel about me. I'm deciding for them what they would do if they did feel this way. And I'm not allowing things to unfold. And it's an effort to control the situation and bring about a specific outcome, even if that outcome is painful Because if I'm causing it, I never have to spend the whole relationship looking over my shoulder and wondering when it's going to happen. And I don't think that we are doomed to live our entire lives that way. And I think that we do have a lot of options and there's room to change and grow and develop new tools. And that's what this podcast is all about. And there's an opportunity to reflect on our own behavior especially in loving romantic partnerships when we're talking about imposter syndrome. And some really good questions are, am I punishing the other person for loving me? Am I punishing them for being attracted to me when I don't like what I see in the mirror? Am I punishing them for believing in me or believing in the relationship Because 
I feel that it's doomed for failure, not based on any reality, but based on just how I feel about myself in the world. Am I punishing this other person for coming between me and my negative self-talk? Because if I've been talking to myself that way my entire life, those thoughts and feelings can feel like best friends friends, even when they're harming me? And who is this person who walks into my life and loves me and supports me and wants to be with me and around me when my voice that has been there through thick and thin destroying me is telling me they're wrong? Because that voice needs to get me alone. Because if it gets me alone, it can break me down. And if I'm in a loving partnership and we're moving through life on life's terms, we're processing things, we're working through problems, we're growing together, that voice that tells me I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I just can't hear it anymore. And so it's very interesting when we're in partnership and imposter syndrome shows up and our reactivity and character defects become triggered. And this isn't a certainty, maybe this never happens to you, but I'm going to bet that there's a few people listening right now who can say, yeah, you know, I do that. I do that in relationships. I kind of lash out when someone loves me. I lash out when someone supports me because it also just brings up every moment in my life when I haven't had that. It makes me think about every time I was in a relationship and I accepted less You know, every time I heard someone say that they love me and their actions didn't match those words, and that became something I got used to. And now when there's this new relationship and things actually are going well, it can be really overwhelming and our system begins to kind of melt down in a way that we can prevent, you know, certain destruction that we think is absolutely going to happen to us is to lash out at the other person or push them away or self-sabotage or ruin the situation. And the thing is, we don't have to do that. We can figure out a new way of working through and walking through relationships and difficult moments. And it doesn't mean that the relationship is definitely going to work out and that can't be the end result. I think I'm bringing this up because the end result can be, I will be okay no matter what, because I will not abandon myself. And me loving myself is not dependent on someone else loving me. So if the love comes, I can receive it. And I can also be okay to go without it or if it leaves. And that takes practice. It doesn't happen overnight and it's not going to happen just because you listened to this episode and I was talking about it. You know, it it takes us being in the middle of things and going through things and developing these muscles and tools and putting them into practice. I'm going through my own version of imposter syndrome at this very moment as I'm recording this podcast because I am absolutely suffering from allergies and all of the smoke from the wildfires in the Pacific Northwest and My voice doesn't even sound normal to me. So I can't imagine how it sounds to you uh, through this recording, but for the sake of being in the moment and using some of the tools that I'm trying to share with you, 
I'm just going to keep plugging away and not let the thought that you're absolutely not going to listen to this because my voice is getting scratchy and I'm having a hard time breathing. Um, and you're going to stick around and you're going to listen and I'm just going to keep going. So let's go back to talking about adult children of alcoholics and how this shows up in our lives, how imposter syndrome makes itself known. And if you were raised in a home where you were dealing with violence or abuse or neglect, you may also struggle with the concept of being seen or heard. In childhood and adolescence, when we were dependent upon a caregiver for survival or having our needs met, being seen and heard meant that sometimes we paid a very high and violent price. So underperforming or flying under the radar um, or the belief that we are underperforming is a powerful way to remain safe and unseen. And at the end of the day, we're always cultivating two separate lives when we grow up in these kinds of households, the one at home and the one that we show to the world. And even when we remove ourselves from the difficult home situation, this pattern can still continue. Some common feelings that imposter syndrome brings up are, I can't fail. I am a fake. I just got lucky. Success is no big deal. Anyone could do it. I don't deserve it. They'll figure out that I'm not as smart or talented or as worthy as they think I am. They don't really love me. They don't really like me. They're not actually attracted to me. They're using me. I don't have enough experience. I'm going to make mistakes. Why would anyone listen to me? Or I don't know how to do everything all the time, the first time, and be amazing at it. You know, the way we talk to ourselves can be really harsh. And I think that adult children of alcoholics can be pretty intense. Uh, a lot of us were parentified children, and we had to almost take on all of these roles and responsibilities that we were not prepared for. And on one hand, it can make us very driven, very ambitious, very focused. We pay attention to details, and we have this desire for perfection. And all of those things are sometimes rewarded by the world as we enter the workforce and become adults. But these things can be crippling if they are not in alignment with who we actually are, or they're becoming things that we use to harm ourselves instead of help ourselves. You know, if I can't keep up this ruse all the time, also known as I'm just a human being and sometimes life happens and it's really hard for me to be perfect all the time, I will believe that I am somehow lacking and I will discount my skills and my talents and my greatness in favor of bullying myself and beating myself up. And I think that this feeling of fraudulence comes about because we had to project competence and confidence and adult qualities way too early in life. You know, if we're 10 years old and we're navigating adult situations with more competence than the adult who was there to take care of us, we feel like a fraud and we feel like, you know, let me just get through the end of this conversation. Let me just convince this person that everything's okay. And then when we begin to gain reward or 
advance throughout our career based on this level of competence and confidence. Um, it can really create a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Like we're not really sure where we are in the scheme of things. And then our fear begins to rise up, our fear that we're going to be found out. And it clashes against our perception of reality. And we can't live like this forever. It's just a very challenging way to live. There's an imposter syndrome expert named Valerie Young, and she wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. And she spoke about patterns that she found in people who experience imposter feelings. She said that they fall into a few categories. And the first one is perfectionists who set extremely high expectations for themselves. And even if they meet 99% of their goals, they're going to feel like a failure because any small mistake will make them question their own competence. Another category are the experts and they feel that they need to know every single piece of information before they start a project. And they are constantly looking for new certifications or trainings to improve their skills. And they won't apply for a job if they don't meet all the precise criteria in the posting. And they might be hesitant to ask a question in class or speak up in a meeting at work because they're afraid of looking stupid if they don't already know the answer. Another one is the natural genius, and that's someone who has to struggle or work hard to accomplish something. And they interpret this as meaning that they're not good enough because they're used to these skills coming so easily that when they have to put in some kind of effort, as most of us do because we're just human and we have to develop our skills, their brain tells them that this is proof that they are an imposter. The soloists feel as if they have to accomplish everything on their own. And if they need to ask for help, they feel that that is evidence that they are a failure or a fraud. And finally, the supermen or superwomen are the ones who push themselves to work harder than those around them to prove that they're not imposters. And they feel the need to succeed in all aspects of life, at work, as parents, as partners, and may feel stressed when they're not accomplishing something. And that's important when we're talking about imposter syndrome in the workplace. And I want to touch on something that I mentioned when I opened the episode. Because there's an intersection of sexism and racism that's so often overlooked in this discussion. There was a fantastic article in the Harvard Business Review back in February of 2021. And it was titled, Stop Telling Women That They Have Imposter Syndrome. And that was written by Ruchika Tolshian and Jody Ann Bure. I hope I'm saying their names correctly. And I encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to read the article. You can look it up just by the title, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. And some things that they shared in that article were that the impact of systemic racism, classism, xenophobia, and other biases was categorically absent when the concept of imposter syndrome was developed. Imposter syndrome, as it's often spoken about today, puts the blame on individuals without accounting for the historical and cultural contexts that are foundational to how it manifests in both women of color and white women. Imposter syndrome directs our view toward fixing women at work instead of fixing the places where women work. And I'd like to read a quote directly from the article. 
and it said, For women of color, self-doubt and the feeling that we don't belong in corporate workplaces can be even more pronounced, not because women of color, a broad, imprecise categorization, have any innate deficiency, but because the intersection of our race and gender often places us in a precarious position at work. Many of us across the world are implicitly, if not explicitly, told that we don't belong in white and male-dominated workplaces. In truth, we don't belong because we were never supposed to belong. Our presence in most of those spaces is a result of decades of grassroots activism and begrudgingly developed legislation. Academic institutions and corporations are still mired in the cultural inertia of the good old boys clubs and white supremacy. Biased practices across institutions routinely stymie the ability of individuals from underrepresented groups to truly thrive. And I wanted to bring that up and I wanted to share that quote and encourage you to read that article because it's a very easy to diagnose everyone. And again, as they're saying, put the focus on the individual, but we also have to pay attention to the system which creates and exacerbates these feelings in other people. I always think that discussing solution is very important, like not just catastrophizing whatever we're going through, but also figuring out ways in which we can work through these things. And as we're talking about imposter syndrome, thinking about what are some steps that would help us to address it and not shame us in the process. And I think a first step is acknowledging these thoughts as they arise and putting them in perspective. That looks like observing them without engaging them. You know, my friend Dan used to tell me all the time not to listen to my first thoughts. And he encouraged me to make space for them, to invite them to a seat at the table, but not to take any actions or make decisions based off of them. Because very often our first thoughts are the sounds of our wounded and scared younger selves. And they really need to be heard, but not necessarily listened to or acted upon. And a good way to look at this is we wouldn't take directions from a tantruming seven-year-old while we're driving a car, right? So we shouldn't take emotional directions based off the big feelings of our younger selves but nor should we ignore them. You know, the same as we'd probably do with the tantruming seven-year-old, we can pull over to the side of the road for a minute and let everyone calm down and take a breath before we continue down the road. But it doesn't mean that when they're screaming to get off the highway that we actually listen to them. When I've shared that in the past, whether in individual work or a group setting, some people instantly misinterpret it. And I want to take a look at that for a second because they'll always say to me, so you're telling me not to listen to my intuition or not to trust my gut. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm encouraging you to discern between your intuition and your damaging first thoughts because there's always a difference between what we think and what we feel and how we respond and what we're actually being reactive to. And sometimes we don't know that off the bat. We need to take a beat and actually think about it. And as we're talking about tools that help us navigate this type of thinking, it brings me back to my own recorded affirmations that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Because reframing our thoughts is so powerful. 
It's not denying that it came up. It's just creating a new way of working through some kind of feeling or emotion. And the voice in my own head that talks down to me or talks me out of things just needs a new job because that voice is powerful, right? That voice is always there. It's always blaring. It always shows up right on time, but it needs a new job and it needs to learn a new script. So when I practice meditating and reciting affirmations, I'm creating new pathways in my mind and developing new muscles for addressing these feelings. And I'm putting my mind and that voice to work in a way that can work with me and for me. And see if that's a new script that you can work with. And even if you don't use my affirmations, finding one that you can work with on a daily basis and knowing that it's not a one-time thing. You know, your voice has been talking loud and aggressively your entire life. So it might take some time to rewire that voice. And I always encourage people to start with a commitment of 21 days of listening to the affirmations and practicing them. And then just see where you go from there. Next, I want to talk about the power of pausing. Just taking a beat or five beats between our thoughts and how we allow them to dominate and direct our lives and how this impacts imposter syndrome because so much can happen in that pause. And I know that we are all encouraged to react in a split second, whether that's in real life, at work, in relationships, or even on social media. The snappy comeback zinger is the one that everyone deems most socially acceptable. But what does that rob us of? It takes away discernment and awareness and grounding ourselves in critical thinking because all of that goes out the window immediately when we don't allow ourselves to pause. But if we do introduce a pause into our practice, we can regularly check in with our body, our mind, our spirit, our energy, And we can take in everything that we are seeing and feeling and thinking to create memories. And we can stretch out these moments of gratitude and acknowledgement and build muscles so it's easier to return to them in the future. Those of us dealing with imposter syndrome really have a hard time with this. If I can't accept the praise or the reward or the love in a moment, I'm not allowing myself to even create a memory and even enjoy it for a moment. And again, I'm robbing myself of that. So these pauses allow us to do that and allows us to trust that nothing bad is going to happen to us if we do allow ourselves to accept this, that I did something good or I have something good or this person loves me. And there are so many other tools out there for working through this. And I'm always going to encourage you not to just limit yourself to what I'm talking about here because my time is very limited in what I can share each week, but to really dive deep and see what would work for you. I sometimes tune into the sermons for the House of All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. And recently, their pastor, Reverend Reagan Humber, shared this in a sermon. He said, Blessing is not some religious code word for things going the way we want them to. Blessing is a spiritual state of awareness where we are reminded that God is still using us, that God is not done with us even when we feel that the world around us has left us behind. 
my God was not and is not done with me. Just like God is not done with you, even if you feel that you are done with yourself. And for me, that applies in this discussion of imposter syndrome because at the core of it, imposter syndrome is us abandoning ourselves before we can allow anyone else to do it. And his message here is that God or a higher power or whatever word you want to use is not abandoning us. God is still using us and working through us. And it's not up to us to decide that the entire universe can only flow through us in moments of perfection. Because maybe we are specifically designed to be imperfect conduits, delivering lessons of grace and patience and compassion and forgiveness and understanding. Maybe, possibly. Who knows? (laughs) So the name of this podcast is Love Letters and Mixtapes, and the inspiration for that was a desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. And if I was going to write a love letter to my younger self about imposter syndrome, it would probably go something like this. How do you want to define yourself in the world? Do you want to be the critic or the creator? The whole world will tell us that our gifts, our creativity, and our methods of expression have no place and hold no value until they've been monetized or perfected to some unrealistic standard. And I say that the world is a liar, and like all the liars I have ever crossed paths with, their voices are loud. Not everything has to be perfect, not everything has to make you money, Not everything has to unfold according to plan. Not everything has to be a final product perfectly packaged and presented to the world for judgment and appraisal. Not everything has to be your passion or your profession or permanent. Some things are just spirit moving through you, and they're meant to be shared in their holy imperfection. And in a world where our demand for authenticity is really a disguised desire for the backstage access to criticize anything we deem less than perfect, it's not always easy to share something you're passionate about but not quite skilled at yet. So may the message of this year be that there is room for all of us to live out loud, to be flawed, to create, to explore, to try new things, to falter, to fail, to be good at something that we never expected, to enjoy the process of learning, to strengthen new muscles, to reveal without shame, to encourage others, to clap more than we judge, and to build momentum for the whole team along the way. And when you walk through this world with trust, authenticity, and humility, you give silent permission to the person beside you to do the same. And if you started your day or this whole year by cutting someone down for stepping outside of whatever framework you put them in, even if that person you cut down was you, you have a chance to turn that around starting today. Be a co-creator instead of a critic. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. Check out this week's playlist on my personal Spotify account and join me on Instagram at loveLettersAndMixtapes. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio.